0: Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by The Pulp Net, your link to the online world of The Pulp Magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Ed Howells, editor of Blood and Thunder Magazine, and publisher at Murania Press, and pulp collector Walker Martin, discuss Western Story Magazine and the evolution of the Pulp Western. This was the second of two presentations on A Century of Specialty Pulps. The talk was recorded on July 22, 2016, at Pulp Fest 2016, in Columbus, Ohio.
1: Uh, Since this was kind of a last-minute replacement for Will, Walker and I didn't really prepare anything, but relying on our encyclopedic knowledge of pulp westerns. We think we're we're just gonna wing it here and we'll make it light and breezy. We haven't gone over anything together, no notes. So it's gonna be as much of a surprise to us as to you. But I'll get it started since we're uh, uh, talking about Western Story Magazine. It was a magazine that grew out of the dime novel. Um, It was a continuation of a dime novel called New Buffalo Bill Weekly. And in the same way that Detective Story magazine, which was Street and Smith's first attempt at a single genre magazine, that grew out of the old Nick Carter weekly, Western Story did the same thing. And uh, the first issue was published in 1919. Westerns at that time, of course, were very popular. They were already a staple of all the other pulp magazines, starting with the Muncies, the Argosies, and they're all stories. A lot of Westerns in the popular magazine, which is another Street and Smith, and of course in Blue Book, at the same time but Western Story was the first magazine that featured nothing but stories from the genre it was edited by Frank Blackwell who was one of the uh, shining stars at Street and Smith he was in charge of a lot of magazines and he started some of the others he, he played a, a role in the for example in the creation of the Shadow magazine although John Nanovic later became the editor of that but as the editor of Western Story magazine Blackwell's job was to cater not only to the younger readers who had grown up with the dime novels but also the older readers. It, it should be stressed that westerns were extraordinarily popular at this point, not just in terms of the fiction but also in terms of their place in popular culture. And Western movies were just as popular as western pulps and western hardcovers and even the western slick stories that appeared in the magazines like the Saturday Evening Post. Blackwell's approach um, uh, initially, since you know whenever you 're the first to start a magazine on a genre, you never really know how it 's going to shake out Western story from the beginning had uh, um, a concentration on ranch life it wasn 't just blood and thunder type of shoot 'em up you know chasing uh, chase the rustler type stories. They were very much involved in ranch life and they also had articles uh, that catered to that too um, what you can't talk about Western story without talking about Max Brand, a.k.a. Frederick Faust, who was the great writer primarily of Westerns, whose initial hits in that genre started and uh, were published in All Story. Uh, his first big novel was The Unknown, which introduced Whistlin' Dan Barry. And like a lot of the Westerns that Brand wrote later on, it was actually his version of a myth. He saw Whistlin' Dan, who had an uncanny affinity with animals, as a sort of uh, like the character Pan. Uh, and little hints, little, little bits of mythology are sprinkled throughout the novel. And um, uh, just, to, just to tie it together, Brand's West was not a realistic West. Brand did not grow up like some Western writers did, he didn't grow up in the West. And it, his West was entirely a mythical creation of his own and it, it varied from story to story. But Whistling Dan was very popular. It's won the sequel called The Night Horseman and as a result of his early westerns in the Muncie magazines he was able to write for Frank Blackwell beginning in 1921. Brand, as some of you already know, was so popular and so prolific that he had to develop at least a dozen pen names just for his Western Story magazine output. He would not only write as Max Brand, he would write as uh, John Frederick, George Owen Baxter, David Manning, and others. And this was so they could put they could put multiple stories of his in the same issue without looking weird. It was you know common practice. So Western story through the twenties was enormously popular, helped by the other pop by the general popularity of the westerns in, in pop culture. Uh, during this time, Zane Grey, who's almost totally forgotten today, uh, Zane Grey was one of the top his books were habitually in the top ten novels, and not just western novels, the top ten novels, best-selling novels every year, year after year, throughout the 20s. You could always find one and sometimes two Zane Grey titles in that year's top ten best-selling novels. So you had Zane Grey and his imitators who were very popular in the hardcover field. Uh, they also appeared in some of the non pulp or semi-slick publications, things like Country Gentlemen, and um, Movies, of course, the silent era of the 20s westerns were incredibly popular for obvious reasons, because there was so much concentration on outdoor action, on locations, on riding, on fighting, on shooting. It was a perfect genre to adapt to the silent movie. So you had the heyday of stars like Tom Mix and William S. Hart and Buck Jones and Hoot Gibson all got started. So Western Story very quickly rose to become one of the top-selling top titles in the Street and Smith stable. Uh, it did not, of course, eclipse Love Story, but it did come close. The figures are, are, that get thrown around are not very precise. Uh, you can find that Western Story Magazine, which, like Love Story, was a weekly. Some, I, I've read figures that they sold 300,000 a week. I've also heard that at one point for a brief time, the circulation approached half a million. I personally think that's, that's an inflated number, and I think that may represent what they call the pass-along figure, which is the number of people who read a magazine after the initial buyer is through with it. I think that has part, part, of it, uh, part to do with it. But anyway, it, was, it became a phenomenally successful magazine, and Brand kind of led the way with his stories. And it is kind of amazing that even though, if you're a Max Brand fan, you can read just about anything of his, and immediately pick up that it's his. The readers of the magazine, when they would write letters in, they would differentiate. They would say, oh, I like the George Owen Baxter much better than Max Brand. They never really caught on in, in a lot of cases. But um, as, as one of the top sellers, Frank Blackwell wielded enormous power, and Max Brand, of course, was one of the highest uh, paid writers in pulp magazines, while a lot of the guys were getting a penny or two cents a, a word He was getting up to 8 and 10 cents a word in some cases. But I'm going to turn this over at this point. We're going to talk to somebody who really knows Western stories because he's had not only one but two sets of it. And he can tell you a little bit about that. He's got an article in the Pulp Fest. But Walker, as a reader and a collector of Western story, uh, give us some of your insights as to what makes it a great magazine.
2: Sure. In the Pulpster, I I have this uh, article in there where I talk about my adventures collecting the magazine. And as Ed said, I've I've done it not not only once, I've done it twice. And I have a major announcement to make. In the article, I mentioned that I still need 11 issues. Well, I actually picked up an issue I need, so now I only need 10 issues. That's out of 13, almost 1,300 issues, I'm down to 10. So maybe I'll even hit single digits one of these days. But Ed mentions Max Brand, and really the magazine could have been called Max Brand Stories because there were so many issues that Max Brand appeared with the short novel and the two serial installments. He, from 1921 to 1935, he was Western Story, practically. Now after 1935, the magazine, I thought, actually improved because Max Brand stopped writing for it. Yeah. <laughs> and Some of the better writers, I like Walt Colburn, in fact, uh, David Earle was out there, he just mentioned to me that he liked Walt Colburn too, and Colburn, uh, he actually lived out west, he he was brought up on a ranch, Uh, he, he lived the life of a cowboy, you know, he knew how they talked, he knew how they dressed, his dialogue sounds like like a Western would really talk, you know. It's not, not like Max Brand. Sometimes Max Brand, you, you, get, a, you get the feeling that he's like talking about some fantasy land sometimes. There used to be Max Brand collectors all over PopCon in the old days, in the 70s and 80s. You were always tripping over them. Guys like Daryl Richardson and Harry Noble and Mike Fogueris and Jim Archambault. I could go on and on. These guys were all over the place and they all died off. And now there's like just a couple Max Brand collectors, you know. One of them I'm close, still close friends with, Diggs Latouche. He's probably up in his room right now reading the Max Brand story. But you know, things, times change, and and the magazine in the after Max Brand left, I would say the best writer other than Walt Colburn, who was a drunk, but you know sometimes he put out a good story. The best writer is probably Luke Short. I really like his stuff a lot. T.T. Uh, T. Flynn was good in Western Story, and so was L.L. Uh, L. Foreman. He wrote a series about Preacher Devlin. And uh, the magazine probably, if I, if I was backed into a corner, I would say Western Story was the best, except there is a period from like 1926 to 1935 when West Magazine published by Doubleday, was probably a better magazine than Western Story. In fact, Ed wrote an article about West Magazine in A a Blood and Thunder uh, a couple years ago, in which he sort of agreed with that, I think. I always liked West Magazine. They didn't publish Max Brand, and the problem with Max Brand, as far as I'm concerned, one-third of the stories are good, one-third of the stories are mediocre, and one third of stories are poor. You never knew what you were going to get with Max Brand. He simply wrote too fast and he wrote too much. And so with any story, you don't know what's going to happen. It's either going to be good or it might be poor. Uh,
1: I was just going to say, I'll jump in real quick. Uh, Brand uh, adopted an assembly line approach to writing Pulp Fiction. When he realized that he could sell anything that he wrote to, to uh, Blackwell, And really it's quite amazing that in addition to the amount of wordage he produced in that 14 year period, the fact that so little of it was turned back. Later on during the depression, when times were tough and Blackwell could afford to be choosy, uh, because everybody was trying to break in. He insisted more on revisions, which of course angered Brand, and it was one of the things that led to his dissolution of that longstanding partnership. But during his heyday, especially when Brand lived in a villa, um overseas where where was it in paris or on in italy 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 he had a, a thing he 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 was very interested in in poetry and he fancied himself a poet and he was only writing pulp fiction for money so he approached it as if as if it was he was doing a job of piecework maybe he was a carpenter or some kind of you know artisan just doing pieces of things and he broke it down so precisely that he figured out that to make the kind of money he wanted at the word rate he was getting he had to turn out it was either 14 or 18 pages a day double spaced pages which is several thousand words a day so he would just sit down and very precisely start at a certain point he would type until he had 14 pages and then he would walk away and do work on his poetry which he, th- he actually wrote with a quill pen because he thought it would help him get the mood of a, of a, a you know, renaissance-era poet whereas he was using the typewriter to bang out his western story things but anyway he was incredibly prolific as Walker said and that, does, that is the big problem. and It was one of the things that did him in finally because he was banging things out so great and, and a lot of times the good stories are good by accident because he would just start with barely an idea. He once said in all my career, I've only written one plot. The good man becomes bad, and the bad man becomes good. And he says, everything I've done in Westerns is a variation on that particular theme. So you, you were going to talk about some other writers?
2: Yeah, I, I want to mention that the Western story, of course, being the first Western pulp, had a big influence on the field. I mean, after Western story, a whole stream of magazines sprung up, and I would say to Westerns, were uh, just behind the, the, the romance pulps as far as popularity. Everybody loved the westerns back then, which is sort of strange because now nobody wants to hear about the westerns, you know. Uh, popular publications uh, published two western magazines that were pretty good, Dime Western, Star Western. Uh, Walt Coburn wrote for both of those. And uh, I would recommend that you try Dime Western if you want to. Get look at a quality type uh, magazine. I always liked it. I also sort of like Ace High and Cowboy Stories. They were published uh, in the 20s right up to the time that Clayton went out of business in 1932. I sort of like them because uh, Cowboy Stories for instance uh, in each story would publish several illustrations which is sort of unusual because you know Blue Book did it but uh, Cowboy Stories also did it, and they had the best artists. They used Baumhofer and DeSoto in the early years, so I sort of liked them. But, you know, there were a lot of lousy Western magazines, and I, and I could go on and on about that, like Thrilling Western, Popular Western, Exciting Western, Mammoth Western. Th- these were not good good magazines. Every now and then a good story would sneak in there, but uh, they were not that that good. And part of the problem was, the fans of Western magazines wanted that formula. They wanted to read about the rustlers or the bank robbers, or they wanted to read about the bad man becoming good. If there was anything unusual, they were upset. They didn't like that. And part of, the, and the way I can prove that is, in the early 50s, Manhunt Magazine came out, and it was a great success as a detective, uh, hard-boiled digest. And they thought, well, let's do the same thing with a Western. So they put out Gunsmoke. It lasted two issues. The two issues of Gunsmoke, if you read them, were full of great Western stories, but the readers didn't want that. They didn't want great, unusual stories. They wanted that formula. So Gunsmoke died like right after two two issues, despite the fact that they were using the best writers and paying good rates and trying to be just like Manhunt. Uh, Of course, the paperbacks continued on for quite a while in the 50s and 60s. Uh, Louis L'Amour started off as a western writer and he really wanted to remain as a western writer but finally the market just dried up and he had to switch to uh, uh, crime novels.
1: Getting back to uh, expanding on what Walker was talking about earlier, he threw out some titles. The, The success of western story led naturally to many imitators. And it was uh, uh, interesting to note that in the 20s, especially, there was a formula that became known in the industry as gun dummy stories. A gun dummy was a hero who really had you no—he know, was the same type of hero you saw in a lot of the Saturday matinee B westerns. He was just kind of a wandering cowboy who would ride into a town, and he had no particular stake in the activities. But you know, some villain would kick a dog, and he'd run over and beat up the villain, or they. You know, he'd get involved in gunfights with bad guys as they came into the saloon. So this predominated in a lot of ways, especially in the 20s. The all-action Western story with these kind of very simplified plots and tons of action were especially popular at Fiction House, which published action stories. That was, we talked about Walt Coburn, who grew up on a Montana ranch, very famous Montana ranch, by the way, um, and he was called the cowboy author. And the, the two Jacks, Jack Kelly and Jack Lennister, who ran Fiction House, uh, they were the ones who really promoted Walt Coburn. And they liked his writing so much that he had an unusual arrangement where he got paid a fixed amount of money. And his deal was that he would always have the lead novelette in action stories, and he would get paid, I think the price was $750 a month for, for his writings. And if he wrote more words, they would automatically pay him a a bonus based on the extra wordage. But the Fiction House books, and I think to a lesser extent, the Clayton Western titles that Walker talked about, Ace High and Cowboy stories, they were pretty much more action oriented, although they did also have comedy. There were the the hooker brothers stories and some of these other guys, which Walker can talk about also. But, uh, and then of course you had the great innovation, which Laurie referred to earlier, of Ranch Romances, which was uh, put out by Pro Distributors, the same company that did Black Mask in the 20s, and was edited by a woman named Fanny Ellsworth, who along with um, Daisy Bacon and um, Dorothy McElraith, who edited short stories and later on Weird Tales, were probably the three best women editors in in the field. I want to go back to Walker talking about popular. What happened was there were so many Western titles and so many that used the same basic formula, what, I, what these were called the gun dummy stories, that there eventually was a revolt. So in the early 30s, there were a couple of editors who wanted to do things differently and who wanted to get a different slant and, and enlarge and, and improve the Western genre. One of them was Carson Mowry at Dell who published all Western. He tried to improve the quality of his stories in the early 30s. The other, of course, Walker already mentioned popular publications with Dime Western and Star Western, which at first were edited by Rogers Terrell, who was later the editorial director of the company. His particular uh, innovation was, he wanted to make a complete break with the gun dummy stories. He never totally did it, but his idea was to invest the stories with what he called emotional urgency, which meant that every Western protagonist, rather than being some wandering Galahad of the range, was somebody who had a stake in the action of the story. In other words, you, he, he, uh, Terrell liked, was very fond of kind of the Romeo and Juliet approach. There would be opposing ranchers that were pitted against each other. The daughter of one would be in love with the son of another. Therefore, the son would get into a fight, maybe he'd kill the girl's brother accidentally, or maybe he'd be accused of murder, but he always had a personal stake in the outcome of the story. And this was a very successful formula that distinguished Dime Western and later Star Western, and to a lesser extent, some of the the others that popular published during the 30s. They did eventually shift away from that, and they tried various things throughout the, the Western pulp era to distinguish their magazines. For example, at one point they said, we don't want cowboy heroes anymore. Make your hero a blacksmith, make him a, they even had uh, one series uh, where, where the hero was a, uh, uh, he ran a, you know, he's a medicine show guy. There was another series written by Harry Olmsted for Dime Western in the early 40s, which was kind of, uh, uh, the, the character was called Friar Robusto. He was a wandering Preacher, so you thought, he was also known as a crook called the Phantom Highwayman. And those stories were pretty popular. And popular, I think the popular Western titles are, are, um, are really good. They're really interesting. Like anything else, and especially with Westerns, 90% it's Sturgeon's Law, 90% of everything is crap. But the 10% is really good. And you, you also find that even after Terrell left, when he went when the uh, popular bought the Muncie publications and Terrell relinquished his post to go to Argosy and he helped transition Argosy into a men's magazine. Mike Tilden, who was his, one of his assistants, took over the Western pulps and he worked to develop some, some top talents of the later 40s and early 50s, one of whom was Elmore Leonard. Uh, I'm sure many of you have seen the great Elmore Leonard cowboy movies, uh, 310 to Yuma, and The Tall T with Randolph Scott, well those were stories that were originally published in Dime Western and um, one of the books, I think it was John Dinan's book, The Pulp Western, reprinted a long, Western by, uh, a, long Western, a long letter from Mike Terrell to Elmore Leonard in which he's rejecting one of Dutch's stories but unlike a lot of Westerns who just sent out brief rejection slips or one-page letters, he, he wrote like a five-page letter and it's really interesting that in, this, in the 50s, when the pulps were really dying off, that an editor thought of as much of the talent of some of his writers, that he would take time to painstakingly list point after point what the guy could do to improve the story. So uh, we're wandering around again, but uh, the, the point is there was a lot of variation, and even though there was a lot of crap, you know, there's a lot of Westerns that I hate. Any of you who've read my Blood and Thunder Guide to Collecting Pulps know that I have no use for the Blue Ribbon slash Double Action slash Columbia Publications line of pulps. I think they're absolute crap. They proved it by paying some of the lowest rates in the industry for original works, as low as a quarter of a cent. They uh, often got stories from guys like Ed Earl Repp. This is again the kind of thing that happened in westerns I don't think ever happened in other genres, where this guy actually set himself up as a factory. He could always sell a story based on his name because he'd done a lot of good stuff. Well later on in his career in the 40s he would get aspiring writers to give him stories which he would then give a quick polish and sell and then maybe he'd get you know, two cents a word but he'd give the guy a quarter cent a word. And in this way there were a lot of guys who of course were glad to have the opportunity because they, they, they were nobodies. They couldn't break into the Western pulps themselves, but those kinds of abuses were even more prevalent in the Western pulps than they were in, in other genres. I'm trying to cram a lot into a short period of time here, so forgive me if I'm bouncing around. Walker, you can pick it up.
2: Yeah, I would like to mention that perhaps the best Westerns appeared in the general fiction magazines. I'm talking about Adventure, Argosy, Blue Book, Short Stories. They paid the top rates, and they often had the best Western writers, like. Tuttle would write the Hashknife and Sleepy series, and Adventure, and and all the other magazines had their favorite writers too. Uh, soon Altus Press will be publishing a, a nice book by Bedford Jones on the Pinky Jenkins series. This is a series that appeared in Ace High magazine in the twenties, and I discovered it, oh, I don't know, decades ago. And every time I talked to somebody about it, they'd fall asleep, you know, but. Yeah. <laughs> But fa- and finally, this, this series is going to be published in a, in a reprint book, and a, a Pinky was a, a drunken sheriff who was always getting into trouble, and I think it's Bedford-Jones' best work, really. Uh, there's a lot of humor involved in it, some wit, and it's completely different from the usual Bedford-Jones story. Uh, I would like to mention one other thing about Western art, the Western magazines really use some of the best artists. Like for instance, Nick Egenhofer is one of the few pulp artists to actually make the jump from pulp right into fine art. If you try to collect a, a, a Nick Egenhofer color painting, you know, people are gonna be asking thirty, forty thousand dollars 40000 But as far as the other Western artists are concerned, you can usually get, today, even today, a Western painting fairly Reason, for fairly reasonable prices. For instance, at Boydentown, I paid uh, $1,200 for a Western Joy painting from 1935. That's cheap, you know. I mean, for a, paint, for a painting, original art, a, a unique piece of work, it, it's not expensive at all. Especially when you consider that if, if you try to buy a, a shadow painting, they start talking $50,000 or something, you know. So w- Western art can still be bought and it's fairly uh, inexpensive. But there's a lot of prejudice against the Westerns today. I mean, I've had people come into my house, look at my paintings, and say you have too much, too many Westerns, you have too much Western art. Well, I disagree. I think the Westerns are colorful, they're full of action, they're they're not expensive, and I can see some people are starting to agree with me because Matt Morian agrees with me. He's starting to pick up a lot of art, and he loves the Western art too. So if you wanna to try to get some original art to go with your collections, keep an eye on the Western theme because I, you can pick this stuff up and it won't cost you an arm and a leg.
1: You know, I wanna, I wanna go back again since we're just bouncing around here. It, I would be remiss if I didn't mention another favorite and certainly a favorite of the collectors at Pulp Fest, maybe not so much today, but certainly in the older period. And that is a companion magazine to Street and Smith's Western story, which was Wild West Weekly. This was uh, another dime novel title. It was part of the Frank Tusi string of publications. They were purchased by Street and Smith in 1927 or 28. So uh, uh, Street and Smith revived Wild West Weekly, which had been, you know, like a 30, 16, 32 page pamphlet type dime novel. They turned it into a pulp magazine. And uh, being a weekly, it ran a lot of stories. And it was extremely popular, and I'm not really sure why, maybe Walker can add when I finish this, why, why so many collectors in the early the years of PolkCon gravitated to Wild West Weekly. It was a different kind of magazine. It was not really adult in scope. It, was, it really played to the sensibilities of the, the 10 and 12 year old kid. Laura, you want to comment? I know why it was popular when it was out, and I think it was because there were a lot of hero series them. Right. But they were all complete stories. Right. Right, I was, I was just gonna get into that, that they, they were very simple, again, very strict formula stories. Ronald Oliphant, who was the editor of the magazine, was an extremely good editor in terms of knowing what his customers desired. He knew exactly who his reader was and he played to that and he developed a stable of writers who, uh, who catered to that market exclusively and really knew, knew how to do it. The amazing thing to me about Wild West Weekly, it was a weekly, okay, so you've got 52 issues a year. Generally, the way it was made up, there were usually three novelettes. One might have been a little longer than the others, but there were three short novelettes and usually three to four short stories per issue. So you're talking about seven stories per issue. That's 350 stories per year. The magazine started as a pulp in 1928 and finished in 1943. So if you do the math, you can find out that you're talking about thousands of stories. And yet the amazing thing is that the vast majority of these stories were turned out by about eight to 10 people writing under various pseudonyms. Laurie's grandfather, Paul S. Powers, uh, uh, had some of the most popular series. There was Sonny Tabor, who was an outlaw, kind of a Billy the Kid type, who reformed it to a certain point. And while he was on the dodge from the law, he would stop to help people in trouble. Another character called Kid Wolf, who spoke in an exaggerated, Southern dialect and uh, who called himself a soldier of misfortune. And another character called Johnny 45, who was a quick shot artist who used to keep his fingers nimble by rolling cigarettes with one hand that he never smoked. He would roll them and throw them away just for the practice. Uh, So Powers wrote a huge amount uh, of fiction there. And for a really fascinating look, at, uh, at, at the relationship between a, a Western writer and an editor, I'd ask you, I'd ask you to go to an, uh, an issue of Blood and Thunder, our old Western issue, the, the number of which I forget. But Lori very graciously loaned me copies of uh, the letters over a 15-year period that Ron Oliphant wrote to her grandfather. And a lot of them are very perfunctory. It's like, you know, I'm waiting for this story that you promised me on the 28th, and I really need it for the issue of such and such. But he also goes into things, you know, you can improve the story by doing this, you can improve the story by doing that, and it shows again how, how tightly these editors focused. They really laser-like on their audiences and on the formula, and deviations from the formula, as Walker said, were not always... Uh, it, it, they wanted you to change things up because they didn't want the reader to get the idea he was reading the same story every week, which of course was kind of unavoidable with that formula. But, but the point was, it's got to be the same but different, but it can't be too different, because if it's too different, we risk losing the audience. So again, besides, besides Laurie's grandfather, Paul Powers, uh, Jay Allen Dunn, who's a terrific pulp writer, responsible for a lot of our classics, including Barehanded Castaways. He did a lot of South Sea stories. He did a ton of westerns, hundreds of westerns for Wild West Weekly under a variety of names. Uh, there was another guy, Walker Tompkins. Was, was Tompkins, uh, Tommy Tompkins a Pulpcon guest in years gone by?
2: No, no, I don't remember. He really wasn't?
1: Really, I thought really he mean. was. Oh, that's Ryerson Johnson, I'm thinking yeah, of. Right. But Walker Thompson was another guy who wrote numerous series for Wild West Weekly, and as Laurie pointed out, they were always shorter stories, and they didn't run serials. That policy changed towards the end of the magazine when they got a new editor, but it was very much a keeping. A lot of the Depression-era readers they didn't want cereals because they couldn't afford to buy all the magazines and they didn't want to risk missing installments of a story. But like I say, there were a lot of guys in the early years of PulpCon. Lester Belker was one of them. Walker, you know some of the others.
2: Yeah, Lester uh, loved Wild West Weekly and uh, uh, he was a guy who was like, he he never grew up. He was still reading the magazine as an adult in his 60s. And uh, the problem with Wild West Weekly, uh, I tried collecting it many years ago in the 1980s, I, I was driving out the pulp with my friend Harry Noble and, he, and we started talking about the old pulps and Harry said the first pulp he ever bought was Wild West Weekly and he loved it. And, and so when I got back, I bought Harry's set of Wild West Weekly, you know, it was, it was a couple hundred issues and uh, I tried reading them and I couldn't, couldn't read them. <laughs> they, they were aimed at the teenage boy market you know, and it, and it just went over flat with me. I, I you know, I just, it was hopeless. I, I, so finally, I got rid of my, my, my copies of Wild West Weekly. I was glad to see them go because it was, it was like a, a magazine for teenage boys, you know? I mean, I, uh, the thing about Western Story, it was a couple steps higher because they, they wanted you to start reading Wild West Weekly as a kid and then graduate to Western Story Magazine, which was for adults. So uh, Wild West Weekly is an interesting magazine, they had great covers and like Laurie said they had some nice, serious characters. Uh, But uh, I I can't see an adult really being interested in Wild West Weekly because it was for kids.
1: Well, you really have to, uh, you know, invoke your suspension of, of disbelief but it it was a very popular magazine and and we had a friend in New York who was crazy about him, uh, named Paul Beckton, uh, some of you may remember him, used to come to Polcons years ago. My father used to tell a great story about his introduction to Wild West Weekly. Uh, He was a kid growing up in the depression in farm country in the Catskills and none of the kids had much money and none of them they were all he, he ran with a crowd that were voracious readers but none of them could afford to buy all the magazines they wanted to read so each one would buy a certain magazine when it came out and then they would all swap them well the, the way it went the first guy who got it got a mint magazine off the newsstands then it would go to six or seven guys the last guy who got it, the covers were torn off, the pages were ruffled, dog-eared corners. But the, the magazines ended up always the same way. They were used as toilet paper in outhouses. And my father saw his first copy of Wild West Weekly in an outhouse. So, uh, and there are some people who believe that's where the fiction belonged anyway. <laughs> Uh, so, so without going too much longer, just a couple of other high spots. Walker mentioned West briefly. This is a magazine that was published by the, the Doubleday and Durand Company out of Garden City, New York. They, of course, were the, also the publishers of short stories, which is one of the great general titles. West was, like short stories, edited in the early days by Harry Maul, who was kind of a jack of all trades for Doubleday. Um, he edited several of the magazines at one time or another. He also was instrumental in developing Doubleday's Crime Club line of hardcover mysteries which started in 1928 and was still being published I think in the 80s. As a matter of fact, they even reprinted some of the shadow pulp novels later on under the Crime Club imprint. But West was very good. Maul loved uh, writers who were, who were were who were really good constructionists and he, also appreciated variety, and there's some real gems. Again, I'd refer you to that, that article on Western Blood and Thunder. Like, for example, Earl Stanley Gardner, who is known for some of his Westerns. I mean, he contributed a series to Argosy, a Western series, but he did a short-lived series in, in the early issues of West about a guy who, the way he's described, he kind of looks like Gabby Hayes, but he's as smart as... Uh, uh, I don't know, any, any smart protagonist you ever saw. But anyway, they're kind of modern Western stories. They're semi-modern because they talk about somebody driving a fliver out to the ranch to, to drop something off or whatever. So they, they're kind of defined in the teens and the 20s, but they're extremely funny. And humor is not really a quality you associate with Earl Stanley Gardner. But it always involves this one foreman, this old guy who looks like Gabby Hayes, outsmarting members of a rival ranch. Uh, there, were, there were also uh, uh, a series of stories with horses as protagonists. We don't really have time to get into that, but there are some excellent stories where you know, the horse's human rider is actually the secondary character. Uh, so you could, t- you could see how people tried to expand the genre. But again, so many things contributed. Paperbacks contributed to the demise of the Western pulps. Even more importantly, the plethora of Western TV shows in the 50s. A bunch of the western pulp writers went to Hollywood. They could make a lot more money writing a script for a half-hour TV episode than they could banging out a pulp yarn for a penny a word. So, uh you, want, you have closing thoughts about this?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a shame that the westerns are, are practically dead as far as the, 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 the reading public is concerned. I mean, when you look at the newsstand now, you, you can basically find five fiction magazines you know, fantasy science fiction, analog, azima's, you got Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, and Alfred Hitchcock's. And that's it on the newsstand. And when I say newsstand, I guess you only find the newsstands in Barnes and Noble <laughs> because I, when I'd grown up in the fifties and sixties, newsstands were everywhere, drug stores, grocery stores, you know, you could buy a fiction magazine or the the digest right off the newsstand. And literally in the 20s and 30s, the newsstands groaned under the weight of these Western magazines. Everybody loved them, and what killed it? I don't know a combination of things. Uh, television came along, and people instead of reading the Westerns started watching the Westerns on on TV. Uh, paperbacks it became cheaper to you know put out a paperback for 25 cents than to put out a pulp for 25 cents. Uh, so. I guess the westerns had its run for several decades and then it, it just uh, became old to everybody and they stopped, uh, stopped wanting to read them and the western was dead by, by 1955 basically though ranch romances did continue to around 1971. And uh, a- after that I can't think of anything. L- Louis L'Amour uh, magazine tried in the 90s for several issues as a nice slick Western magazine with fiction in it, and that was a flop too. So, uh, westerns are dead as far as the magazines are concerned,
1: and I think we are too, or very close to it. So, with that, we'll say thanks very much for sticking around, the bitter end.
0: You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the Pulp Net, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2016.